This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, changes are coming to some FAA knowledge tests. And AOPA's Mark Baker testifies on general aviation. Some sad news, this will be the last year of racing at Reno. But on the other side of the coin, Ian, we beat Washington State's Avgas Band. That's good news, and also some helicopter pilots lend a helping hand in California. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. David, our guest is Bob Cromer. Bob is a lifetime, really, a longtime aviation executive. He's just retired from Blackhawk Aerospace, the mod company, but he has seen it all. He's seen all of the inside of general aviation, and he's got all the stories and all the experience. We want to thank Tom Haynes for tracking down Bob Cromer. You know, I know Bob Cromer's name from the Mooney Digest when I owned a Mooney, okay. but that is not the only place that he worked. <laughs> yeah, that was just one of many. So um, he'll get into all that in a few minutes. And before we do the news, I hear, David, through the grapevine, that you've had a recent epic journey. I did, Ian. I did a, a transcontinental journey in the uh, the restored Piper Tri-Pacer with a 135-horsepower engine from Hood River, Oregon, to Frederick, Maryland. It took, it took five days of, of flying. I had a, one mechanical issue uh, where I had a flat tire. It was a popped tube. It's actually mm. a defective tube. Quick shout out to Scott Bradley of Bradley Aviation in Columbus, Indiana for helping me out. And for all of the pilots and uh, FBO personnel and other folks that I met along the way, you all were great. Y'all were my team, my A-team. Pilots always have a lot of team members behind them, and I can't stress enough that you know I had good support from folks, but it was an epic journey, Ian, and I recommend it to other aviators. So is that your first time coast-to-coast? Coast? First time coast-to-coast coast solo. Okay, cool. Well, welcome back. Welcome back. Glad to be here. Glad it was a safe journey. To the news, going to start with knowledge tests, FAA knowledge tests. There are a couple of changes. These are just to the private and commercial airplanes, so fairly limited for now. That'll be implemented April 24th. And basically what they're doing is they're shortening the test duration and adding a few questions. Yeah, Ian, you were telling me ahead of time that this story just got published at um, AOPA.org. The private pilot test will now consist of 65 questions. It's up five questions from the original 60. Mm -hmm. And similarly, the commercial pilot written test goes to 105 questions 
from 100. But Ian, how long do they shorten the test period by? Yeah. So private used to be 150 minutes. Now it's down to 120. And commercial was at 180, and it's down to 150. Now, if if I don't know, were you like most students? Did you essentially memorize the test book and then go in there and finish in 25 minutes anyway? You know, it took me about an hour, but I felt, okay. you know, I felt confident going in there, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. And most people, of course, do that. There are people who don't necessarily memorize everything and they go in and they do take all the time. So I'm going to be a little cynical here and and say that this might be related to some of the changes that PSI made where they they lowered the test fees they were paying to schools we know right, that right we know some schools as a result dropped testing and so i wonder about capacity at what was at some of the testing centers that were left and so they had to be able to squeeze those in because there are less schools yeah. oh yeah so that's sort of a time crunch there and a pers- personnel crunch yeah. which we've seen across the board in aviation we've had a resource crunch for the last number of years that's a good point ian And, you know, people are still unhappy about those PSI test centers. Really, the ratio that that the FBOs uh, and the testing centers were getting paid was what changed so much about that. Yeah. And so just as a very quick update about that, we've talked about the letter AOPA sent in support of the flight schools. AOPA and some other flight industry stakeholders have gotten together, and now they're pushing the FAA side of that equation and asking the FAA to have a little bit tighter oversight. So we'll see if anything comes out of that. Hey, speaking of oversight, Mark Baker was recently at Congress and gave some testimony on priorities for AOPA and general aviation. Yeah, you know, Mark uh, highlighted Congress on some of the initiatives that we've talked about over the past few Hangar Talk shows, mainly transient ramp fairness, and that's something that that everyone can relate to. Mm -hmm. Also, the hangar shortage, that's something that I'm relating to right now. I finally found a place to stash the Tri-Pacer, but there's a nationwide hangar shortage. He also talked a little bit more about unleaded fuel and how we are moving ahead in that direction. And uh, several other initiatives that APA is mine, including trying to solve the designated pilot examiner nationwide shortage, which is yeah. also critical because that has driven up the price of check rides big time as yep. well. Yes. Yeah. So the reason that that we're pointing this out, and the reason that I think it's it's notable this cycle around, is the FAA is they're up for a reauthorization, so Congress right. has to put in a big bill that's going to send them many billions of dollars and tell them how to use that. And um, for the first time, I think, there's some intent on Congress's part, and in in particular, Transportation Infrastructure Committee Chairman Sam Graves, who's a pilot, we know, to include GA as a specific subsection of the bill. And that means the chance to really get some priorities highlighted. Well, Ian, when you are looking at some of the issues that the FAA has battled uh, with in the past, including some of these database issues and the some of the, I don't want to say database, the data breach issues or the mm-hmm. NOTAM issues, things like that, the infrastructure needs to be updated across the board. And you've got to include GA with that as well. It's not just yeah. about commercial, you know, aviation. And as we'll, as we'll talk about a little bit later on, GA plays a huge role with saving local communities at times when there's a big need. Absolutely. So I think that's really important. You know, the thing is, is that um, 300 aviation organizations got behind this letter that Mark sent. And we're specifically talking about ramp space, parking on different ramps. You know, Mark likes to say one mile of runway gives you almost a limitless options uh, for roadways once you get to where you're going. But that, the infrastructure, folding all that into the uh, FAA reauthorization plan is probably something that's been long overdue. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think so. All right. So some sad news. The Reno Air Races, which have been going on now, this will be for 60 years. It will unfortunately be the 60th and, and final year of the National Championship Air Races at Reno. Ian, September 13th to 17th, mark your calendars now. The folks that I trained with out in Hood River, Lars especially, Lars Lundquist, uh, CFWI is going to go to Reno. He's been there before. He was talking it up a lot. But, yeah, you know, the, the race has lost some money recently. I think COVID hit them pretty darn hard, to be honest. Yeah. And the championship races, don't forget, a couple of years ago, they even introduced the stall events, the short takeoff and landing events, which were hugely popular. Yep, they have been. But um, and every September, just north of Reno is where where it was held. But seven racing classes, you know, I think just the times they are a changing, like Bob Dylan said. Yeah, there's no question. I think they're probably looking at some liability factors where the city might not be as supportive as they were in the past. Right. Because of accidents. Encroachment, I think, to the airport, I've heard, is maybe a concern as well. It's hopefully not the end of racing in general. I mean, people probably don't remember prior to Reno, there was a nationwide, essentially network or nationwide series of races. Oh, did it move around the country? Yeah. I mean, there were races in Cleveland and Miami and the, okay. I think near the Outer Banks and Phoenix and, you know, and at Reno and everywhere else. And so this was a much more common, you know, multiple event a year type of situation. So I don't think it's going to necessarily get back to that just because of the money and, and logistics involved. However, it, it it does show that they have been held in other places and they were held successfully. Yeah. I think part of the issue at Reno was that there were some very high profile crashes, unfortunately, within the past few years. And that did not do much to uh, allay the fears of the local community, you know, even though this even though this brought in a ton of money mm -hmm. and a lot of tax revenue. People do, you know, recall the tragedies, and, and I specifically recall several years ago when an aircraft crashed into the grandstand. Yeah. So that is, it's always a, a tough deal to hear about that, and thinking about the pilots who put their life on the line for, for entertainment, you know, it's a tough, it's a tough business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we'll be right back. Okay, so Avgas, we like to bring this up often because it's a big issue that's going to impact pretty much all of us over the next yep. couple of years. And one reason that we've talked about Eagle and Avgas replacement, all that sort of thing, is that I think, like we've seen in California, this lo localities, counties, states, cities, whatever, are going to start to try and pull back on Avgas and, and its legality in that state. And we were seeing that in Washington state, where they introduced a bill completely banning the love Avgas. I think it was after 20, 2026 is when they had proposed it. AOPA, through its network of uh, regional advocates, got involved early, testified against the bill, and had a positive outcome. Yeah, uh, kudos to Northwest Mountain Regional Manager Brad Schuster, who I saw here in Frederick a couple of weeks ago. House Bill 1554 was the bill you're talking about, Ian, and that was, uh, you know, there are a couple of facets of the bill that I, I do understand, but one of them was to prohibit the sale and distribution of 100 low lead in phases from 2026, additional prohibitions in 2028, and a statewide ban effect of 2030. Make no mistake, AOPA is all for unleaded and, and getting the lead out of aviation fuel, but in this case, it was premature, and that's what Brad brought to the folks' attention. And so he did testify. He had some testimony that was, I guess it was received favorably. And so changes were made. And you know, Washington State, Ian, when you think about it, 
That is actually where I picked up the the mighty tripacer from uh, the Dalles, D-A-L-L-E-S, Dallesport, and um, over at Tack Arrow, and that's just right there on the Columbia River Gorge. But uh, Washington State is a is a darn popular place to fly because it's right there on the Pacific Northwest on the coast. Uh, there's a lot of varied terrain there. So, yeah, that was a problem. Yeah, and this is something that we're following in lots of different areas and making sure that what happened in California isn't repeated around the rest of the country. So, and one of the parts of that strategy, I think, is being able to say exactly what you said, which is we're on board for uh, that Avgas replacement. We're, we're behind it. We're part of the leadership team that's working on that. So I think that lends some credibility when you go in and you say, no, 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 wait a second. You can't do this quite yet. So... Great job, Brad, and the AOPA advocacy team and all the other partners in Washington. And, and we hope that, at least for the time being, that issue is settled. So, Speaking of great jobs, Ian, let's bring bring this to our, our listeners and our viewers' attention. Yeah, Helicopter pilots provided some lifelines to trap residents out in California. Even as we record this, they're still buried in, in dozen, over a dozen feet of snow. Yeah. It's incredible. Julie Walker tracked down a really interesting story that we're going to talk about now in the Lake Arrowhead area. And a tip of the hat to Susan Newman Harrison and her husband, Rob, who helped coordinate a lot of these measures that brought food and equipment and supplies to local residents that really had no grocery stores available to them and no way to get around under those feet and feet of snow in the high mountains. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen some of the photos. The, a friend of mine sent me a picture of the snow out there, and it's just incredible. He, His friend is a ski patrol guy at one of the resorts, and it was like, I think, the lift. So they showed a nor- normal picture of the lift in the summer, um, and then a picture in the winter, and the guy's standing at the top of the lift on the snow. I mean, it's just incredible. Like, abo- oh like above gosh, the chair. Amazing. amazing the amount of snow they've had. Yeah. Yeah. 15 feet of snow, Ian, more than 15 feet of snow. Now, people do go out to Lake Arrowhead to go skiing, for sure. It's a beautiful place to go. I wish I've been there. But, you know, uh, a lot of volunteer pilots jumped in, about 500 uh, volunteers, uh, not just pilots, but also locals. And the Harrisons let, let their home serve as a weather station for the volunteer pilots. And they joined California DART, the Disaster Airlift Response Team, to deliver the needed supplies to the mountain towns. So that it shows you that when pilots get together, they can get together and do some darn good work. And pilots really do open their arms and their hearts to folks who really need the help. And that's where we as GA community uh, members and pilots can really make a big difference. Yeah. I mean, they, they were talking about many tons of stuff that they shuttled back and forth. And of course, when you're talking about a helicopter, and especially these are mostly turbine helicopters burning jet fuel, this is not a small expense on the part of the uh, right. the owners and pilots. They distributed over 56,000 pounds of produce, 7,000 hot meals by the World Kitchen, and uh, more than 20,000 people received donated food in a short period of time and yeah. saved many lives. Yeah. Congrats to them and thanks. Great job putting, you know, helping your your neighbor and uh, putting GA on positive display. So that's that's awesome. Thanks to Julie for tracking that down. Yeah. All right, David, Bob Cromer, he's a legend for those who have worked in aviation and interacted with these manufacturers. And it's just so fitting, I think, that Tom tracked him down and, and talked to him because it's like, you know, two lifers side by side. Two legendary aviators get together for a chit chat.
today's guest uh, on Hangar Talk is a longtime friend of mine and uh, and an amazing general aviation advocate, Bob Cromer. So uh, welcome, Bob. Tom, how are you? I'm doing great. I just want to give everybody who's listening kind of a perspective on Bob and the and the long relationship we've had. You know, I first met Bob somewhere around 1990, 1989 or something when Bob was executive vice president, general manager of Mooney Aircraft. But Bob has been around the industry for like 45 years. So another decade or so before that, he had an amazing career at uh, Cessna in particular, working on a lot of single engine aircraft projects. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. Then after Mooney was at Swearingen Aircraft as a flight test engineer, and then also a little time in the, in the association world like me with the Mooney Pilots Air, Mooney Aircraft Pilots Association, and then uh, back at Swearingen, uh, working again on the SJ30 project, one that seems to to never end, and we, maybe we can talk about that <laughs> <Yeah>. too. <laughs> and then a stint at Piper Aircraft in sales and marketing and customer service, and then to Simcom, which is a big training center in in a marketing role, and then over to Blackhawk uh, Aerospace, where you've been for the the last couple of years, and from where you just retired in January of uh, 2023, but still, like me, can't can't get away. So, continuing to do some some work in the in the aviation space and and helping out in general aviation. So, so Bob, you know what an amazing career. Thank you for taking the time to to join us, and uh, let's let's go back first to to those days at Cessna because you know it was really some iconic airplanes that you were working on. You know, back in the in the seventies and eighties, that uh, those airplanes still out there, kind of sort of the heart and soul of general aviation today. Yeah, yeah, we had such a vibrant engineering flight test department at Cessna at the time. I hired into the general aviation industry at Cessna in nineteen seventy seven. Got a dream job, flight test engineer at the Cessna Pawnee division. We developed and certified the P two ten that the project I was assigned to, flight to known icing for the two tens. But I can't tell you how vibrant the industry was back then. Tom, it was amazing. You know, in 1978, I think our industry delivered like 17,800 airplanes in that year. 17,000. It was a feeling of invincibility that we could do anything we wanted to. You know, Cessna alone would deliver 20 to 25 airplanes per day. It was an amazing time. And I am so thankful that I got to experience General Aviation, Cessna Aircraft Company, in the absolute heyday of its time. Yeah. I mean, you're right. That was an unprecedented time. So what happened? I mean, it, if you look at the the numbers for the aircraft manufacturing at the time, you're right. It was like 17,800, you know, in the that 77, 78 time frame. And however, by the early 80s, it just went off a cliff and went down to, you know, a few hundred units and obviously, by 1986, I think it was Cessna was completely out of the piston business, and 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 some of the other companies were in or near bankruptcy. What happened? You know, it, it's hard to say. I think it's so many things that played into the difficulties that we had as the industry started its decline. Certainly, some of these were self-inflicted. Some were not. Some were some were just the nature of the business and the nature of the economies. I think one thing I remember at Cessna in the early days. We had such a vibrant involvement as the factory, as the new aircraft manufacturer, the OEM. We had a direct involvement in promoting flight training, and we weren't the only one. Cessna had the Cessna Pilot Center organization. Piper had the flight line, flight training centers. Beach had beach aero clubs. I know because I was a member of one as a young man. 
And then even Grumman American had Grumman American flight training. So Tom, if you were in the business of building new general aviation lighter airplanes, it was almost like you were also in the business of promoting flight training. You know, I have a lot of archives I've kept over the years. One of my most interesting articles, if you can see this, is a full page ad from a OPA pilot in the 70s, a full page color ad promoting the Cessna Pilot Center organization. And Tom, as you know, not only were these factory sponsored training organizations teaching people to fly, it was supplying a pool of new aircraft buyers and it worked. We were involved in training as the factories building new airplanes, but we knew that by spending money in fly training, we were developing a new pool or we were building the pool of potential customers for new airplanes. And as times got tough, that became a pretty expensive endeavor to be in factory sponsored flight training. We started backing out of that as an industry and, uh, you know, flight training therefore suffered without the involvement. And one of the things I'll remember about the flight centers and the factory involvement in flight training was the quality of the training airplanes on the flight line were always very high. It was a high quality airplane, fairly low time for a trainer and the factory subsidized or helped the Cessna pilot centers and the pilot flight centers, I mean the Piper flight centers, through, uh, through involvement with providing newer airplanes. It was, again, factory involvement in flight training and building new customers. When the times got tough, that, that effort went away, and I think the industry suffered because of that more than we, more than we realized. Yeah. So there was obviously a dual purpose there. I mean, not, not only were they selling products, but they were helping to build the future customer base. Absolutely. Building the pool of potential customers. And, you know, I would go to some of the shows at Cessna as a young man. Again, I was an observer. I was an engineering flight test at the time, but we'd still go to the shows, the demo shows, the sales shows that the factory had. And it was amazing how many people you would talk to that had started with a Cessna pilot center and had received their licenses, generally private instrument, bought a light airplane from the manufacturer that trained them. And Tom, then they moved in and moved up. That was a really big concept back then in sales marketing. Move in and then let's move them up. Golly, look at how the manufacturers were set up with all the various models for moving in and moving up. So would you say it was a, a short-term financial decision on the parts of the leadership of those companies at the time that we're still paying a price for today? You know, Tom, those, those decisions were made at levels then above me, but I do believe it was a, a financial cost. I think as things, as things started downward in the early 80s, I believe the manufacturers started looking at costs and said, you know what, are we really receiving tangible feedback, tangible benefits from training and being involved in training programs as the manufacturer. And I think the, the tough question that they ask had an equally tough answer is, eh, we may not be. Right. And so those programs disappeared. Right. One of the manufacturers at the time, the leadership, you know, I guess later when they looked back, some of the decisions that they said were made in part because of the product liability, that they were saying these kind of enormous numbers that, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of uh, cost was built into the, the airplanes 
to cover their liability exposure, which was happening. You know, these product liability suits were pretty crazy at the time. Did you have any sense of that? Any any accuracy there? You think was that did it have a role? You know, in the companies I was involved with early, I don't remember specific comments made that product liability is causing us to focus more on top-end airplanes. But Tom, it only makes sense as a manufacturer building and selling a top-end airplane, especially a turbine airplane, they're almost guaranteed a higher level of pilot who's flying it, a more advanced airplane with advanced systems, some advanced safety features. So as the manufacturer, if you look at a product liability problem, you're thinking to yourself, well, you know what? It's the lighter end of the business that we have so much exposure. So let's dwindle that market and let's concentrate on the upper scale market where our exposure to product liability is reduced. And it is. I've always felt like from the OEM standpoint, the new aircraft manufacturer standpoint, that's leaving behind the market that will get you to the, the success goal someday. But, uh, you know, when it comes down to pure finances and especially exposure to product liability, there's no question that the more sophisticated airplanes carry less liability with them than a lower end light airplane. Yeah. So another point that people often make when they talk about what's happened to general aviation over the decades is, is around sort of lack of innovation. And I know you've got a point of view on particularly propulsion and engines. You know, we're flying behind engines that were designed really in the, basically in the 20s and 30s and maybe, you know, kind of fine-tuned in the 40s. And, and so it feels like, you know, the innovation around propulsion hasn't been very strong over the decades. What do you think about that? It does. You know, our airframes are solid. Uh, even though we haven't progressed in a big direction aerodynamically, our airframes are very solid designs. They're proven. They work well. Goodness gracious, the advances in avionics are tremendous. In my career, it's probably the number one thing I've seen as far as advancement for our, for our industry is avionics and avionics capabilities. Paint and interior are always solid. There are good shops now that do those sorts of things. But it's that we missed a little bit of innovation, I think, in the, pist- in the, in the uh, propulsion world, especially in the lighter end of general aviation, where we rely upon four, six, and eight-cylinder piston engines. You know, many hours I've spent flying in the turbine airplanes, especially here at Blackhawk or at Blackhawk, you sit in the seat and you're flying this turboprop airplane and you're thinking, how awesome would it have been? If when times were good, we would have taken this turboprop engine technology and brought it down to the levels of light general aviation, 172, 182, a range of engines between, say, 150 horsepower and 500 horsepower, where we had sort of a basic design of a turbine engine that we could have fit in these lower end airplanes. Tom, I think it could have been a game changer for us if we had if we had realized piston power plant technology is solid. It's gotten us a long way down the road. It's 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 not anything we scorn, but bringing the concept of a lower cost turboprop engine to the lower end of general aviation, I think would have been a big big breakthrough for us. Right, right. We tried it at Mooney. You probably, well, that's when I met you. We were we, we said, you know, we're going to go outside the box at Mooney. We're going to think of something new. 
in the power plant world. And Porsche teamed with Mooney to develop the PFM 3200. Had a lot of great features. It really did. We put it in a longer body fuselage Mooney. I flew the first development flights on the, on the PFM 3200. And I saw a turbine-like operation in a piston package from a highly respected engine manufacturer. Unfortunately, the engine was heavy and it didn't quite have the power to weight ratio it should have had. Porsche was very close to delivering a 240 horsepower version of that PFM 3200. That would have been the winner. But we decided to move on, certify the airplane and sell the lower cost, not normally aspirated engine airplane. And we missed the mark. We should have waited for the 240 horsepower turbocharged version. It was just a few months away. And I'm telling you, that could have been a power plant we're talking about today. Yep. You know, you're right. When I started at AOPA in 1988, AOPA had one of those from, well, shortly thereafter had one. And uh, I got checked out in it and it may well have been the first Mooney I ever flew. I'm not quite sure about that, but it, it was certainly one that I spent some time flying cross country in and actually using it in business transportation and that sort of thing. And it was awesome. I mean, the single level power control, very sophisticated electrical system with a lot of redundancy was, uh, was you know, a very nice upgrade compared to what we were. Um, but you're right, it did not quite have uh, the, the performance that uh, we all had hoped for. We just missed the mark, Tom. We missed it. Hindsight, we maybe should have waited for the turbocharged version, which was close. And I think with 240 horsepower compared to 217 horsepower that the normally aspirated engine had, I think that would have been the game changer for the performance of the airplane. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. Uh, that would have made all the difference in the world. So let's talk about costs. I mean, that's another thing that often gets kicked around as, you know, a reason that uh, we're still flying around in the same airplanes that look uh, a lot like they did back in the 70s, yet they cost a whole lot more than they did then. And, and people notice that the price of airplanes has gone up dramatically relative to the price of other things in our lives. And um, what, what do you think causes that? How, how did we end up here with such high priced, you know, million dollars for a, a, a G36 Bonanza, which is the, pretty much the same one that they were putting out in the 70s, except for slightly different throttle quadrant. And of course, the Garmin G1000 panel, which is wonderful, but still, it doesn't make the airplane go any faster uh, or carry anymore. Yeah, yeah. I think there's economies at scale, of scale at work. When you have an industry that builds 17,000 airplanes. You obviously have an industry that uses more parts and more pieces that and higher volumes become less expensive per unit part. And I think as the industry started its downturn, the loss of the scales, you know, the production efficiencies due to scale started in the wrong direction. And instead of buying 6,000 engines from Lycoming or Continental a year from the OEMs, maybe that number now is down to 2,000 or 1,000. And so the economies of scale just start working against you and you have to start raising unit prices to make up for that loss. As we talked about earlier, the product liability definitely had an impact in pricing. Uh, I can remember just seeing the prices go up and I also remember as an employee, just hearing the comments about product liability cases and 
the losses that we incurred. And so that reflects in the price of the airplane. So it was all like, Tom, this, this momentum just went, started downward in the 80s. And it, it was really, it's kind of been that way since. Now we've sort of leveled off, you know, in our production numbers, but nothing like the heyday, which I got to see in my early career. Yeah, absolutely. But there were some sort of flourishes of innovation, some of which succeeded, some of which did not. You worked a lot on the SJ-30, for example, which at the time when it was first introduced, designed by Ed Swearingen, sort of legendary designer, and it had a lot of innovation, was very fast, very long range when it first was announced, and yet it never really made it to market. Could talk a little bit about that time frame and what you saw in that airplane and your thoughts on that. The SJ-30, Tom, was such a tremendous airplane. It had wonderful speed, 0.8 Mach cruise for a light jet. Back then, that was really significant. The only competitor at the time was the site of the early, early uh, CJ, basic CJ airplane. Now, we could cruise that airplane at 430, 440 knots. It had a 12 PSI cabin pressurization differential. At 41,000 feet, the airplane was certified with a sea level cabin at 41,000 feet. It was remarkable to be able to fly up there without any change in cabin pressurization. So it had all the technological and all the performance advantages that the market was looking for. Tom, it was the first time in my career I learned the lesson of when there's new product being brought to the market, specifically a new airplane design. There is the cost of research and development and prototyping and flight test and certification of the airplane. But there is also a cost and a large effort required for setting up the manufacturing of the airplane in quantity. We spend a lot of time, money, and resources on development and certification of the SJ-30, and our production plans lagged behind. The airplane was certified, and we really weren't ready to produce large quantities of airplane as soon as the airplane received its type certificate. And I think that's a good lesson for all companies and all, all endeavors in our industry. You got to plan for two separate costs and two separate efforts. Technically, the aircraft getting a type certificate and also getting a production certificate to build them. And those two efforts really should go along side by side because when the airplane is certified, you want to start building airplanes and delivering them as soon as possible. Right. And that's sort of the first company to have stumbled there. I mean, Cirrus, we almost lost Cirrus Aircraft. You know, it delivered its first airplane in July of 1999. And they struggled mightily for several years to get the financial backing that they really needed to, final, to finalize their production processes and get that production certificate and get airplanes in volume out the door to the point that they could actually make some money. And even Honda Aircraft, you know, after that long development period for the, for the uh, Honda Jet, they struggled for quite a while, too, to come up to a volume of manufacturing that uh, had them any chance of being profitable. At the established manufacturers, you sort of take for granted that you have all of the production processes in place. And you do. But when you're a new company with a new product, you don't have those production systems in place. And so you must remember and not forget we have an aircraft certification program underway, but we want to build these things in quantity someday. 
And so you've got to be able to have the production side of the equation running parallel with the certification side. If you do, you win. Well, one of the great things about the airplanes that have been built over the decades, though, is how robust and strong, particularly the airframes are. We've seen a lot of companies come along that have done an amazing job of creating enhancements and improvements to those airplanes. Blackhawk, uh, where you've been the last few years, being a great example of that, of taking the tried and true, particularly King Airs and some caravans and, and those kind of airplanes and, and breathing new life into them, giving them lots of new options. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, Tom, there's no question that the aftermarket, which is that taking an existing aircraft, airplane, airframe, and improving it is a very viable market. The reason is airframes are built to last. You know, they last a long time. It, it's, uh, it's amazing how in our industry, in general aviation, uh, the airframes that we build have longevity. They're built with redundancy. They're built with a lot of safety margins installed and therefore they're strong and, and sort, short of corrosion or of course abuse, airframes last a long time. So you're starting with a basic airplane and you can take that basic airframe and then replace the expendables, paint and interior expendable, avionics have become expendable with new upgrades and power plants are, are uh, an expendable that you can improve. You, you remove existing power plants and at Blackhawk, we install new turboprop engines same as the manufacturer did on that model in later years. And you can do that safely. And of course, with all the regulations and certifications you have to obtain, you can get that approved. And then you have taken a basic airframe, replaced the expendables and have quite an attractive, high performance, very nice looking airplane for less cost than purchasing a new one. Yeah. And I think one of the things that surprises me whenever I fly one of those upgraded airplanes, and it's it's really more true in the in the jet world where I've flown jets with upgraded engines, is the level of efficiency that comes. The the greater fuel efficiency of some of the modern engines is just astounding compared to what they were certified with back in say the seventies. It's where we've made our greatest strides in power plants, in turbines especially, is just more efficiency, and they are much much better and. We found at Blackhawk by installing engines with more available power. Again, everything we do in the old, in, in the aftermarket has to be within the original guidelines of the original airframe. We we never would allow. We do not allow busting red lines and things like that. And the in regulations and the certifications don't allow that. But what you can do, for example, in a Blackhawk upgraded King Air is you can cruise your airplane now at higher altitudes because it climbs better. Turbine engines love altitude. They run better and they run more fuel efficiently and the true air speeds are higher. So it opens up a whole new world of performance with enhanced engine upgrades. So with your decades of experience and perspective, what do you think is next for general aviation? Where do we go from here and what, what are we going to be flying in the next couple of decades? I'm very hopeful that there is an electric solution in the future for us. The concept makes great sense for us. And I think it's a natural step for our industry to move into electric power. Being from the certification world, I see issues and somebody has to be first 
to the market. Somebody has to be first to take the airplane through the certification effort. And then we have questions about, do we have enough battery storage capability? Can we store enough electricity, electrical energy in this airplane to make it usable instead of just a one hour flight around the pattern? These are questions that I believe will have solutions and they're gonna be a ways away. And until that time, Tom, I think it's just going to be basically status quo as I see it in the world that we're in today. What is your opinion? Do you you see things for us going uh, in a direction with what we have today? Or do you see us going straight to the electrical world? Well, I think think the, the step to electrical is going to be hybrid. I think that the idea of using a you know, a rather efficient small turbine engine like an APU kind of thing to generate electricity to drive electric motors that drive propellers, for example, is probably where we're going to be for, you know, quite a while before we, long before we get to pure electric for any kind of meaningful long, long distance flying. And at the end of the day, I don't think anybody can argue that using an electric motor to drive a propeller is more efficient than a cylinder, you know, an, an ice engine, an internal combustion engine versus a, like say a turbine engine. So I think uh, that if we're going to see efficiencies there, but I, I, I agree with you. I think we're a long ways away from seeing a purely battery powered electric airplane. In fact, we may never see that for long distance. It, it might be okay for regional transportation, something like that. Long distance flight, my guess is more likely we're going to find some sort of a fuel cell hydrogen, which has got its own issues of being from a from a supply chain standpoint, but hydrogen might be a, a solution long-term for longer distance flights. But again, using it to generate electricity to drive motors that are actually providing propulsion to the airframe. So lots of challenges out there though, but uh, you're right. Somebody's got to, got to get there because from an environmental impact standpoint, I mean, wh- wherever you are from that point of view, it's an issue, one that we, we can't escape, the fact that uh, aviation and, and really transportation or mobility in general is a big contributor to issues in the, in the environment. So we got to figure out from a public relations standpoint, again, regardless of where you are on, on climate change and all that sort of thing, it, it's a public relations problem that needs to be solved. And so we've got a lot of challenges out there to get that done. Exactly. Well, hey, Bob, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk with this. It's always great catching up with you. It's always fun to talk with you and, uh, and, and hear your point of view of things. And, and I love how you're always so positive about uh, what's happening in general aviation. Hey, listen, I have been the most fortunate guy in the world to have 46 years of, of experience in a career, in, all in general aviation. It's like a marathon with stops and goes and changes in directions. You have to be prepared for that if you're going to have a career, a full-time career in general aviation. But I have to tell you, it's been a wonderful time. I've seen wonderful people come through the ranks. The teams that I've been a part of have always been dedicated, hardworking, passionate about what they do, Tom. And uh, it's been a great run. And thank you for your friendship over the years and, and the things that AOPA has done for the industry. It's remarkable, remarkable how AOPA has helped us from the manufacturer side, from the operational side. It's been a key fixture in the industry for a long time. And Tom, thank everyone at AOPA for what the association has done for our industry. All right, my friend, Bob Kromer. Thanks so much for joining us. Great catching up. See you, Tom.
So congrats to Bob on his retirement. Thanks so much for spending a few minutes with us. It's very well-deserved and an incredible career and so cool to hear about his experiences along the way. Thanks to Tom Haynes for tracking down Bob Cromer. I got a chance to talk to Bob just for a minute or two, and it was great to hear about the past, the present, and the future. Yeah. All right. That's all the time we have. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash talk and on YouTube. All right. We'll see you. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.